You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. I'm joined on air now by Candace Mama. Candace has been on the air with us before, and it was an incredible segment where we chatted about how Candace herself had overcome the incredible adversity that played out from when she was a baby after having her father killed by the apartheid hit squads. And I didn't think we would be chatting about something as sad, if not more sad, as we are today. And that is the situation that we face in our country in respect of GBV and all aspects relating to the way women are treated. And this is in in the wake of what we heard this weekend of a University of Fort Hare student being found murdered and dismembered by her partner. Candice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, even though we're talking about such a devastating subject. We're living in an era where we would expect women to be treated better, yet South Africa with its liberal constitution and its Bill of Rights has some of the highest rates of violence against women in the world, highest rates of femicide, highest rates of rape. Why? Chad, that is really the million dollar question, right? We are a country that has got so much potential in every way you look at it. South Africa should be different, especially for women. Um, and I think it's so devastating that we are looking at something that is, honestly, if it doesn't change, I don't know how we're going to continue to move forward. I read a statistic by Becky Teller where he said 10,000 women were raped between January and March. I mean, that is insane. Insane. And those are only reported crimes. And so when you're asking me the golden question of why is this, I think we can look at it historically. We can look at it as, you know, we do come from a deeply um, devastating past, which was 25 years ago. But I mean, in democracy terms, it's pretty young. And so we can say, okay, people are still, you know, um, having the conditioning of violence that they maybe grew up with. So that could be one thing. Uh, we could look at poverty as another thing. And I think but I think it's so important not to focus on all these things that we can make excuses to say, yes, okay, this is happening because of that. I think it's more important for us to start looking at, like, we've had these conversations. We keep having these marches. How do we change this? How do we, each as individuals and us as a collective, start moving in a different direction where women aren't afraid to be South African? The historical context is important because we have a history of violence. Mm. But when one sees what happens in the home, with uncles, with grandfathers, with fathers who are abusing those that have been entrusted to their care. And when one sees a student kill a fellow student and then dismember her body, one has to ask the question where we've gone wrong as a society. Is it societal or is it because we have a breakdown in our criminal justice system? Oh, it's definitely both, Chad. It's 100% both. I think You know, societally speaking, as you said, you know, coming from a deeply violent past, I think that definitely plays into it. I think the fact that we never got, I don't want to say therapy, but there was never this sitting down of how is this going to impact our psyches, right? How is coming from this deeply oppressive system and moving into a new democratic country going to really mentally impact us years down the line. And now we are years down the line, and we're looking at also cultural issues, right, like where women are still not considered to be equal to men in so many cultures. And then we look at the fact that violence is so much a part of our psyche. We're so used to violent crimes that we choose environments. We choose, you know, to live in a suburb where we can try and insulate ourselves as much as possible from what's happening. 
but it's still happening at such a big rate. And like you're saying, at university, it's absolutely insane to me that at a university where you're sending your child hoping they're going to be safe, that they get dismembered. And so for me, when we're looking at it from a societal perspective, I think we we need to really start paying attention to it. Um, I think government needs to start really implementing sustainable things that we can look at mental health issues because it is a mental health issue, I believe, and alcohol issue. So we need to look at those two things as a society. And then you bring it back and you think to yourself, okay, individually, Chad, like how are we going to change this? Like what can you do? What can I do? And what is the criminal justice system doing? Because for me, my biggest issue with the criminal justice system is I don't feel like our police are being trained in sensitivity in order for them to really be able to look at these cases in a way that, you know, is it, it feels supportive. It feels protective. I mean, I know I've worked with Tears, which is an incredible organization that protects women. And I know how people and women who have been through abuse get treated by police. And it is inhumane and it is awful. So I think on both fronts, we need to be figuring this thing out. And it needs to be an emergency. We're going to hear from our advertisers. When we come back, I want to speak to Candice about the phenomena of sugar daddies and the spread of HIV AIDS. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. South Africa has what is called a sugar daddy syndrome. There is a, this has been a huge factor for the spike in teenage pregnancies fueling the HIV epidemic and COVID lockdown. What was frightening is that during this women's month, the government released data that 23,000 teenage girls, I don't know why they say teenage girls, because some were as young as 10 were impregnated between March 2020 and April 2021 in Gauteng alone. According to child rights groups, South Africa's pervasive sugar daddy syndrome remained one of the contributing factors to teenage pregnancy in the country. And this, this is, this is Rape, this is GBV, this is crimes against the children. It's, it's, it's just a, a staggering figure. Candace, what do you make of this? It is mind-blowing, Chad. Like, as you were reading those statistics, even though I know them, I just, my skin stands up. And as you're saying, it is, it is rape, right? It is an attack on young women. And especially because I think when we start looking at how in South Africa, we started glamorizing this thing, especially when it started, when it was the whole sugar baby thing. And it was like we were starting to really profile these people and almost making them a celebrity, right? And now it's spreading because it's been so normalized in our culture and in our society. And now we can't get a handle on it. And I think when we're looking at what this period in time has done to us, Chad, it's economically impacted so many families. And I think in many ways, the saddest thing is how families are actually pushing their daughters into these relationships in order for them to survive. So it's really prostitution. It is, you know, pushing young women into sex work without calling it sex work, calling it um, under the name of sugar baby and sugar daddy or whatever. When we all know that what this really is, is illegal. It's illegal sex work. So I think for me, as, as soon as we start using the correct terminology for it, then we can start policing it better and we can start changing it. it it's, it's frightening because I'm reading the stats here and they say, according to the National Department of Health, adolescent girls and young women between the ages of 15 and 24 
contribute 1,300 new HIV infections in South Africa every day. And it's quantified that we have almost half a million young girls contract HIV annually. This is frightening. What's even more scary is that studies have found that certain family members encourage young girls to have sex with older men to put food on the table. Unprotected sex with these teenage girls is a preference of the older men and young girls are unable to negotiate condom use, often falling pregnant or, or, or picking up the HIV virus. This is, this is beyond criminal. This is becoming a crime against humanity when one looks at the situation. When one talks about 8 million people in South Africa infected with AIDS, 500,000 new AIDS cases, mostly young women every year, this is, this is an epidemic. This is a crisis. So crisis is the word, Chad. I think, you know, we are living in a space of crisis. And, you know, I think when we look at these statistics, we should also never forget that outside of war states, South Africa has the highest gender-based violence and rape statistics in the world. So the fact that we are ranking highest in a category that no country would want to win the award for is devastating. And we've been here for a while. I'd love to pretend like South Africa's been here for only, you know, the past, you know, year or two. But, Chad, I think this is the first time we're probably starting to take in the data and we're starting to really look at it. But I think this has been a phenomenon that's been growing for the past, you know, five to ten years. And I think that it's about time that we start because I'm so afraid of constantly having these dialogues and we speak about it. But it feels like it never affects change, right? And for me, it's why is it not an urgent issue? Why are we not really going into these communities and saying, how is this, like, what is the psyche within these communities that they think, it's okay for young women to be sleeping with an elder of that community or married men because a lot of these men who are giving these young women um, these diseases are married. And so why is this being made to be okay and why are we not putting in structures? Because, I mean, if you and I know these statistics, I'm pretty sure the police department knows them, the president knows them, and nothing is being done about it. And that is the infuriating part. A principal was fired recently. Two teachers were suspended um, for making students pregnant. And we hear about policemen, pastors, members of the community, and of course, family members all being involved in this. And it comes down to the fact that there must be corruption because mm. they, we don't hear about all the cases. They really do hear about cases. They don't get enrolled. Do you think corruption is a factor in, in the fact that these cases don't go very far? Oh, corruption. And I think even deeper than that, you know, I've had my own personal experience, not from a gender-based violence perspective, but I went through something and I had to go to the police to report it. And I remember feeling so, and I mean, I'm someone who, you know, I've been through school, I've been able to articulate, I'm of an age where I can really put a point across without feeling intimidated. And I thought to myself, they made this experience so awful for me being the victim of this crime or the stalking incident. And they belittled my experience to such a degree that nothing ended up being done about it. And I still left feeling endangered. And I just thought to myself, if I had come here to report something as serious as a rape or, you know, being taken advantage of in my community, and this is how I was treated, 
I mean, I don't even want to know the psychological trauma that would have on me. And so if I look at it from that perspective, where I'm someone who comes from uh, where I've built a life where I'm very privileged, I've got access to psychologists and I've got friends and I'm articulate and I can have these platforms, other people do not. And so they cannot, you know, go onto Twitter and say, hey, I went to this police station to report this assault on me and this is how it was handled. It was handled with care and compassion and empathy. Instead, it is. It, it almost looked at, at least from my experience and what, from what I've heard and seen, the police themselves don't look at gender-based violence as an issue. They don't look at, you know, um, they'll tell you things like, and I've heard this so many times, oh, just go sort it out. Oh, go tell your mother. This is a community problem. This is a family problem. And so if the police don't think it's an issue, then who does keep these young women safe, Chad? Who is there for them to turn to? They can't go to their pastors because, as you said, the pastor themselves will say, let's pray about it and turn around and be the very abuser. The policeman doesn't care. Your mother or your father or whoever's in your family doesn't care. And so I think we're dealing with a bigger cultural, but also a bigger issue when it comes to policing. And yes, corruption has got something to do with it. But I think the bigger issue is the lack of compassion, empathy for women. I think in South Africa, women's lives are still not seen as valuable. You know, they're very dispensable. And I think that is the biggest problem we're facing. Our policing system lacks the empathy to deal with these kind of cases. It's absolutely shocking. When we come back, we're going to chat more about the the way women themselves and and young girls can go forward in life of a, after having experienced adversity because we're not going to find a solution on this show. We're not going to find a solution in the coming years. It's a societal generational change that needs to take place. But at least Candace will be able to give guidelines to those out there that have been victims about what they need to do. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. If you're listening to today's show and perhaps you're a victim or you know somebody who is a victim, um, and I hate that word. I prefer the word survivor. But we have a toll-free line at Chai but anybody can call in. It's totally anonymous. It's 0800-242436. And you can chat about whatever it is that's worrying you or any information that you may perhaps have of somebody that needs assistance. Chatting to Candice Mama today about the scourge of violence against women and children in South Africa. But we want to move now from the statistics and the horror stories that we heard in the first part of the show into how to overcome this adversity. And there's no one better to guide us and to assist us than Candace, who overcome incredible adversity that occurred when she was still a baby and followed her through her entire childhood. Candace, what is your message to, to women and children that have that have suffered adversity as a result of what we've been discussing today? Absolutely, Chad. I think the first thing to acknowledge is it is not your fault. I think the biggest thing people who have survived this kind of trauma go through is they blame themselves. I shouldn't have gone here. I shouldn't have dated this person. I should have, shouldn't have done this. And I think it's so important to just put that to the side and say it is not your fault. Being assaulted, going through these things is never your fault. And I think after you take that as a premise, I think then the most important thing is to address the trauma. And by doing that, what I mean is it's really reevaluating how you view trauma, how you view what's happened to you. And the best way I can explain it is when the when the incident happens, Chad, that is like the first point of impact, right? That's when that that 
footprint in your soul is set, that traumatic incident, that moment in time. That's the first time it occurs to you. However, every time you relive it in your brain and it causes this visceral reaction, you get anxiety, you get ulcers, you know, you break out into a cold sweat, you cry. Every time those happen, it is like the trauma happening again and again and again. And therefore you end up living a life whereby you re-traumatize yourself time and time and time again. And so for me, this is when the work that I do comes in, which is really taking on the path of forgiveness. And when I, when I say forgiveness, I know a lot of people who've gone through trauma have just recoiled a little bit. Um, and I completely understand it, but I think it's very important to understand when you forgive something, it is not condoning what happened and it is not about the other person. It is about taking back your own power and it is about taking back control of your own story and really saying to yourself, this thing happened to me, but it is not who I am. And I think that is a key differentiator whenever you've overcome trauma. Sometimes we get so defined by our pain and we forget that it's not who we are. So the biggest thing I'd say to any person who survived you know, trauma or gender-based violence or rape is this thing happened to you, but it is not who you are, and you have the power to redefine what your life looks like from this moment forward. So those are some of the things I would say, Chad. We have dialogue, and we go through all these motions, and we have a Women's Day and we have a Women's Month, and suddenly everybody focuses on what's going on, and we talk and we talk and we talk. What are the actions that we actually need to see happening, and how do we communicate to these really impoverished people in rural areas that are bearing the, the major brunt of this GBV and this sexploitation by older men, where in some cases their families are complicit? That is a, a big, big, big question, Chad. You know... It is important that we, you know, dialogue in and of itself is not necessarily ineffective. The way we're doing dialogue is highly ineffective. So I do believe that although we do need to talk about this, we do need to be shining a spotlight on these things. And it cannot be a monthly thing. It cannot be every August we remember that we are in a national crisis. It needs to be an ongoing dialogue. It needs to be an ongoing thing, but more so than just dialogue. I think the biggest thing that really needs to happen is we need to start looking from the top down, from the structures that be, whether that be the policing department, going all the way down into like community leaders, into, you know, churches and really training those individuals and those people that are leaders of their communities of, you know, the country, whatever it may be, training them into these roles of compassion. How do you deal with it when something like this happens? How do we prevent something like this from happening? And the only way to do it is to stop normalizing it, is to stop making it something that, oh, you know, one in three women get raped. As much as we know that those statistics, Chad, give us like a reaction, unless you know a face of that one in three, many of us can easily look past it and can go on with our lives. And so I think it's so important to start humanizing this thing and saying, hey, it could be your sister. It could be your wife. These are people that with real faces, with real, you know, um, who are real tangible people. They're not things. And I think for me, that's where our biggest issue is. Um, I think whenever we're dealing with things that are this severe and this big, what tends to happen is 
because we don't want to sit with the discomfort of what it is, we recoil from it and we're ashamed of it and we try and go into our little bubbles. But the truth is the only way to change it is to really face it. And I think as soon as we can start really making this a real high priority item and start changing the way community leaders operate, how the reporting system works, how police handle cases like this, how like the judges rule over cases like this, because that's an issue in and of itself. Then I think we can start moving forward. We can start seeing real tangible change in the country. Candace, there were some incredible figures that came out a few years ago from Dipslut. A study was conducted on rape and child molestation and the figures were in the four digits, they were in the thousands, and the rates of convictions over that three year period on those same cases were in the single digits. It was it was frightening. And overall in South Africa, the figure that gets banded about about convictions is around about the five percent mark. But when we do see these convictions, they severe, they life imprisonment without option of parole. And we see that the state has come down hard on those that commit femicide and those that commit rape. The problem I see is that the courts are incapacitated. Mm. And I think from a practical perspective, we need to find organizations that can come together and find funding. And I'll give an example. Business Against Crime South Africa a number of years ago realized that the police didn't have the infrastructure to investigate complex or sophisticated financial crime. So they funded the commercial crimes units as a joint venture between BAXA, Business Against Crime South Africa, the National Prosecuting Authority, and the then commercial crimes component of, of the police, which is now part of the Hawks. They established offices, they gave them infrastructure and specialized courts to be able to prosecute financial crime criminals. Why can't we see the same thing coming together where we have courts that are just there for gender-based violence, rape and murder of women? Ooh, that is powerful and I completely agree with you. It's not that we can't do it, Chad. It's we are currently not doing it, right? And I think that is one solution that we could look at. We could definitely look at implementing and doing. What I found to be really interesting, though, with when with my time working with tears is I was like you know always looking for people who were willing to fund organizations that were willing to fund um, big corporations that were willing to put their money behind us and what I found so interesting and this was a conversation I had in confidence with a leader of one of the big establishments and they said to me and they were very serious about this Chad which I think they were brave enough to actually say it to my face but I think a lot of people actually experienced that and that's why I was not getting funding and I was running into these walls he said you know rape and sexual assault are not sexy on a CSI right like a corporate a corporate social responsibility saying oh we're going to help rape it's very, it makes people feel uneasy. It's not a comfortable word. Even me continuously saying it has made a lot of the listeners feel very uncomfortable. And it's because we don't want to necessarily tie ourselves to things that are, that don't seem as, um, achievable or attainable or also have real human value to it, right? Unlike if I said, let's go save the whales or let's go save the rhinos, like a lot of organizations can get behind that because it's really nice to package and beautiful adverts can be made. But when you're talking about things that are this severe and this brutal, and we all know that anything sexually related 
it tends to have shame attached to it in society. I think a lot of people run into that, their own internal bias, and they run into the whole, you know, what is it going to look like? And then we've got an issue of like a lot of people saying, you know, I'm so afraid of supporting movements that are pro-woman or that protect women um, because I am afraid that someday a woman could say I was inappropriate to her or whatever that is. And so I think so many people run through so many um, things in their mind when they're thinking about this particular issue and it becomes a harder thing and harder not to crack versus other issues that we deal with. You know, I don't know if what I'm saying makes any sense. It's opened my eyes completely. Um, when one thinks about businesses coming together to protect their bottom line by capacitating, providing resources and funds to the police to create specialized courts for financial crime, it sickens me that these same corporates won't come together and fund a similar project to capacitate the courts and to provide resources for specialized prosecution of, of offenders that, that have committed these vile, heinous crimes against women and children. And I never, ever considered what you said. It's, it's something that has really opened my eyes. And it, it's just not a nice enough thing to get behind or it's something that is just too negative. Mm-hmm. How, how do we change their perception about this? How do they realize that this has a direct impact on our country's standing and more importantly, it's impacting on our women and our children? You know, I think that is the, that is a great question. And I find that for me, what I tend to encounter is it, it has to directly impact the person whose wallet is going to be coming out, right? Like, so they have to know that it was their daughter that was affected, their direct person. Um, and I find that when they just hear about a different story and I, even women in corporates, this is the most interesting part, Chad. And this is why I think another thing that a lot of women do not speak about sexual assault. Because a lot of women don't want to be defined by it. And that's exactly what ends up happening. If a woman is found out, and I had a case like this, I'm not going to mention the organization, where a woman, it was found out in the organization that she was sexually assaulted. Not by a member even in the organization, but she'd been sexually assaulted while working at the organization. And she said she wishes, she's like, the sexual assault, she said to me, Candace, the sexual assault was bad. She said, but what my reputation has become is even worse. She's like, the repercussions I've got to deal with, with something that happened to me, has been more devastating in my life than the actual incident itself. And so I feel like as women, whenever any sexual, like I said, any sexual connotation occurs, anything that was sexual in nature, organizations can't help but to recoil. And so even her senior management, the men she dealt with, she said, Everything became so difficult. You know, men were afraid to really speak to her. She said even the ones that weren't afraid to speak to her kind of like distanced themselves in some way around her. And so it's really interesting as women how so many women don't report because they know that even in dating, Chad, it it impacts every facet of your life. Men don't want to date a woman who's been sexually assaulted or so they feel because they feel like, oh, my God, I don't know how to be there for you in that capacity. Employees don't want to speak about it because they don't know how to handle it. And so whenever we're dealing with this kind of a situation, it becomes very difficult to repackage it in a pretty way because there is no pretty way to package it. Right. This is a real human consequence. This is something that is really affecting the country. 
But right now, it's not impacting the country enough for it to sink the bottom line. And until it becomes an issue that sinks the bottom line of the economy, it sinks more women, let's say, start leaving South Africa because they fear for their safety. More women, you know, refuse to work in certain sectors of society. Until I think as women, they take a stand and say, you know what, until I feel safe, I refuse to work in this sector of society, or I refuse to stay in this country, then it's no, it's not something that a lot of organizations are willing to really back and get behind. And I hate to be like that person because you know how positive I am and how I'm always looking for the silver lining. But in my experience, having worked within these organizations for six years, this has been the issue I've run into time and time again. So what I've just taken away from that is the fact that victims are re-victimized because of the stigma associated with sexual-related crimes or crimes that are GBV-related. And that is something we really need to work upon. Mm -hmm. And I think we've covered a lot today, and there's a lot of food for thought in respect of how we get CSR to change their perspective on supporting organizations that will be able to fight the scourge and perhaps even our legal fraternity coming together to help establish these courts. In closing, Candice, and thank you so much for joining us today, Tell us a little bit more about your daily dance routine. Where does that come from and what does it do for you? <laughs> That's a great way to end, Chad. Um, <laughs> thank you for asking. So, um, no, I think for me, you know, and, uh, you know, the kind of work I do tends to be, you know, very trauma-based and I work in the self-help space. What I found for me very early on in my career, around 23, and I'm, I'm 30 now, so I've been doing this for seven years. And what I found is when I put on a really cheesy dance song, like the cheesier the better for me. And I just dance in my living room and I like film it for some reason, just seeing yourself dancing. It makes you feel so happy besides releasing the endorphins, you know, of like that dance and that movement and feeling joyful for listening to a nostalgic piece of music. Um, I found that it actually does so much for my mental well-being. Um, and as you know, I post it now on social media and I love the reaction to it because as we, as you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners don't know, I am not a great dancer, um, but I think people love seeing me try. And so that brings me joy. <laughs> and it brings us joy. And that's the most important thing. <laughs> Finding joy in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the anxiety and the depression we're all suffering. It's great to see you dance. Thank you so much, Chad. And really, I really hope more people will, you know, it is a difficult time in every arena of society. And I, and I really hope, Chad, that if 2020 and 2021 has taught us anything, is how finite life is, how finite this human experience is. And I really wish that more people, regardless of what you're going through, just find the joy in being alive, right? Because none of this matters. All of us are going to end up, you know, passing on at some point. And I think you have to make your days as joyful and as filled with enough things that fulfill your soul as possible. And I wish that for every single person listening. Thanks for joining us today, Candice. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Chad. It's always such a privilege.